it's an aeroplane. It's fine, I'll wait. Jess here and welcome to episode 2 of Humans Are Worse. Today's actually going to be a little bit different. Now I know it's only episode 2 and I'm already breaking the mould, I'm sorry, but I'm actually in Brussels right now so I don't have any cats. This is the first time since getting Clarice that I've been away from them. Actually, this is the first time in over a year that I've had no cats whatsoever and it's really weird but anyway I'm visiting my boyfriend in Brussels for the week and don't worry when I get back I'm quarantining for the next two weeks Woohoo! but he actually lives in a house that's ridiculously echoey so I'm currently sat on the bed with a duvet on my head and I'd like to tell you it is very warm I can't open the window because he lives right near the airport uh, and there's always aeroplanes flying overhead. So we're just going to see how this goes. I might need a few breaks to kind of like air myself out again, but it should be fine. I kind of wanted to start this episode off by, I guess, reminiscing. I am missing my cats loads. Like, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> I've been sat here thinking about what things I can do now that I can't normally do with cats. Simple stuff like, well, I'm sure you heard last episode, I'm very glad that now I can eat food and not be disturbed. I think one of the biggest things that has been great is to not have to shout at Norman every five minutes for trying to get in the cupboard underneath the sink in the kitchen. I've actually had to use hair bubbles to tie the handles together But he still manages to get in there, it's really strange. Sometimes I'll just hear rustling and have to really work to get them hair bubbles off and I open the cupboard and he's he's literally right there. But sometimes, of course, when I'm asleep, he likes to get in that cupboard because bear in mind, this is the cupboard where all of the cat treats are. Ah, yeah, it's starting to make sense now. So sometimes I'll actually just wake up in the middle of the night really smelling cat food. You know that like wet cat food smell? It's it's not good. Even for cat owners, we understand it's not a good smell. And I've actually realised that what he'll do is he'll get in the cupboard, he'll grab the cat meat, he keeps it in his mouth and he just runs, little toddle, through the entire house until he gets to my bed, goes underneath and rips the packet to shreds, eating the cat meat that's inside. Which is really weird because normally when I even put the cat meat out for him, he will only eat the jelly and not the meat. But I feel like when he gets it himself, he's so proud of himself that he doesn't really realise that he doesn't like the meat. He doesn't really realise that he doesn't like the packet because it's not food. He just rips it to shreds, everything's gone, leaves it under my bed. But of course sometimes he does this while I'm at work as well and I won't realise. So some of the time... I'll pull up my mattress just because it's easier to reach through the bars and grab the packet and I'll find two or three down there. He just hoards them. I do miss my cats. I'm not going to deny that. 
ever. But I'm kind of just glad that I'm not waking up to the smell of cat meat under my bed. So speaking of that, let's get on to why humans are worse. My god, I need to air myself out. It's too warm. Oh my god. I'd like to point out that as I'm down here, I do have my laptop with me, but my screen isn't actually that bright. I have tried to turn up the brightness settings, but it's just not doing good. While I was writing these notes, I actually got sick of writing the notes. There's so much information, it's ridiculous. So I have very nice notes on my laptop, but I also have a notebook that has really scribbly notes. So I'm going to be going back and forth between the two. It's just, in this light, I can't actually see the notebook. So we're going to see how this goes. So it's February 2012. An 18-year-old, Samantha Keoning, is finishing up a shift at a roadside coffee kiosk in Anchorage, Alaska. So her boyfriend arrives to pick her up, but the lights are out and she's nowhere to be seen. He contacts her dad and her dad hasn't seen her either. Her boyfriend then suddenly receives a text message from her phone talking about how she wants to go away for a while. But he says that this isn't like her at all. She's very much a homebody. So him and her dad get in touch with the owner of the coffee shop just to have a look at the CCTV, see if she got a ride home with someone else, see if she was acting a bit strange. But I guess when they viewed the CCTV, their worst fears were realised. So Samantha on the CCTV can be seen serving the last customer of the night. She was finishing up her shift at about 8pm and this happened just minutes before. He orders a drink, she starts to pour it. You can actually find this CCTV footage online. Quite a lot of what I'm going to talk about you can see online because quite a lot of it is actually based on digital evidence. So she makes this coffee for her last customer of the night turns back towards the kiosk window in order to hand it over and take the cash. But you can see in the CCTV footage that suddenly she raises her arms. Moments later, she turns off the lights, she backs away from the window, and suddenly you see a masked figure jumping in through the window, binding her, and then taking her off out into the night. After this, the police are obviously informed, but three weeks pass by and there's no leads at all. Then one day, her boyfriend receives a text detailing a location in a nearby park so he goes there and when he gets to this location he finds a plastic bag and inside is a photo of Samantha wide-eyed hair braided posing next to a recent newspaper with this image was a ransom note for $30,000 to be deposited in Samantha's bank account so I see a lot in films and stuff that they say oh no don't ever give them the ransom money and I'm not actually sure what the official stand on this is but they went to the police and the police told them to deposit the money into her account. They did this so that they could track any withdrawals through ATM systems so money begins to leave the account in $500 increments. This is simply because that's the limit for the day. So they look at the CCTV that's attached to the ATM machines and they see a disguised man taking money out. And of course, he's got his whole face covered so they can't make out who he is. But as he walks away, they realise that he... Oh my gosh, <clears throat> where's my voice going? Hello, come back. So as he walks away from the ATM machine, 
they see that he's getting into a white Ford Focus. They can't see the license plate, but they decide that this is what they should focus on. <laughs> Ford Focus? Focus on? Yeah, I'm really not much without my cat. <laughs> I apologise. So the account is accessed in New Mexico, Arizona and Texas. But luckily, just beforehand, the Texas Police Department were told to look out for a white Ford Focus because they thought that he was going to be in the area. So the Ford Focus was actually spotted just outside of a motel and they waited until the driver got into the car. They then waited to see if he would make a minor traffic infraction. And of course he did, so it was easy for them to stop him. Once stopped, they asked for his licence, and of course, it was an Alaskan driving licence. He also matched the appearance of the guy in CCTV, and was immediately re- and was immediately re- and was immediately arrested. So this man was 34-year-old, Israel Keys. His car was searched and police found dice-stayed money, a mask, gun, and of course, the bank card of Samantha Koenig. I just kind of want to put a disclaimer here, I guess, if that's what you call it. Um, Israel Keys is trash and I almost didn't want to talk about him because he doesn't deserve any recognition whatsoever. But I have a podcast and telling you about him is just going to prove my whole point that humans are worse. So I'll try and keep my cool, give you the facts, and then afterwards we can just be angry together, okay? Okay, let's do that. So Israel Keys was born in Utah in 1978. He was the second eldest child of ten children. Ten! Oh, the pain! His parents were highly religious. I think that's kind of obvious by the whole ten children thing. And he was homeschooled so that his education would line up with their views. When he was young, his family moved to the woods of Colville, Washington, and lived without electricity or water. And they also began... Oh, there's an aeroplane. They also began to attend the Ark, which is, I believe, a branch of extremist Christianity... So they hold racist and anti-Semitic views, believing that those in their own community are superior. They moved around a little more when he was young, to Oregon and then Maine, and his parents became maple syrup farmers. It's not really important, but I wonder what they were doing before that, because that just seems like a really random thing to do. Enough about the weird religious maple syrup farmer parents. Throughout Israel's childhood, he would steal guns from his neighbours' homes and by the age of 14, he'd made his own homemade silencer. He would also torture animals. I've read stories about a deer and even about him torturing a cat, but I can't even bring myself to go into detail about that. I'm sure a lot of you would know that the killing of animals during childhood is typical psychopathic behaviour and it may be an indicator of conduct disorder. Children with the disorder show antisocial tendencies such as lack of empathy and turn to killing animals in a way to gain control of a situation. However, it's kind of like an addiction and they begin to crave the adrenaline rush and due to this they're known to go on to bigger things as an adult. So I'm talking about bigger things as in other humans here, not bigger things as in like whales. Although 
that wouldn't be the most surprising thing I've ever heard. Well, to be fair, I don't think I have the capacity to be surprised anymore. Hence the podcast. Now, I'm going to say the one thing that makes the most sense out of this whole thing. Oh, voice gone again. He disagreed with his family and their religious beliefs. No, don't go thinking that's a glimmer of hope. I'm just going to extinguish that right now. He told them that he decided that he was an atheist. And for this, he was kicked out of the family home. Now, I wonder what they'd do if they found out that he'd actually been delving into Satanism. In 1998, he joined the US Army and spent some of his time in Egypt. Yes, I know I just skimmed over the whole Satanism thing, but I'll come back to that. While he was in the army, he got a DUI, but didn't have any other trouble and was honourably discharged in 2001. Around this time, he also met the mother of his first and only child. She battled with alcoholism and addiction to prescription pain medication. And of course, instead of helping, he left her. He took his daughter and moved to Anchorage, Alaska with his secret girlfriend, which is where he lived at the time of his arrest. During the police interrogation, he laughed at the details of the capture of Samantha Koenig. So there's footage online of the FBI interrogations with him. I watched some, there's over 40 hours of it, and it just made me sick to my stomach. He laughs at the details of the capture of Samantha Koenig. And it's not, it's not an uncomfortable laugh. It's as if you've just told him the funniest joke. He told police that he killed her hours after capture, waiting weeks before he dismembered her and put her body through a fishing hole in the frozen Madanuska Lake. But wait, if he killed her hours after capture, How did he send a ransom photo of her live three weeks later? I'm glad you asked. For this, we have to kind of travel back in time. So Samantha Koenig was taken to Israel Key's house. And this is the house that he shared with his girlfriend and daughter. She was taken into the shed just outside of the property, which was his man cave, that supposedly his family knew not to enter. I'm sorry, but if my boyfriend turned round and said, this is my man cave, you are not allowed to enter here, I'd be like, what are you hiding? The sick thing about this is that the heating in this man cave was already on. He had literally prepared to arrive with a victim. So in here, he turned the radio all the way up, told her that he was going to ask for ransom and then set her free, so... She kind of, I guess, relaxed a little. He left her in the shed and went into the house for a glass of wine. And of course his family were asleep because he'd been driving around for hours with Samantha in the car. After returning to the shed, he sexually assaulted, then strangled Samantha Koenig to death. He then put her body in a cupboard, turned off the heaters, and shortly after, he left for a two-week cruise with his girlfriend and daughter. But what about the ransom note? Chill, we're getting there, it's fine. I just want to say that it's going to get real minging real fast. On his return from this lovely two-week cruise, Israel Keys proceeded to thaw out her body before sexually violating it once more. 
He then put heavy makeup on her face, sewed her eyelids open and braided her hair just like he did for his daughter. He then propped her head up and took photos for the ransom. During the interview, he showed no remorse for his actions, like we said before, but he did say that he didn't want media attention. This was to protect his daughter from what he'd done. And I always hold the view of, if you don't want someone to find out what you've done, that means that you probably shouldn't be doing what you're doing. But he said that in exchange, he would offer information of other murders that he had committed. And that is the part that I ran out of patience with writing notes because I hate him so much. So let's go to the poorly lit notebook. Oh my gosh, I'm actually going to air myself out first. Ugh. So I actually had to just leave and continue writing my notes because this story is so wild that there was no way that I was going to be able to keep track of what on earth I'm saying. But I'm back and it's all good. So during police interview, he spoke of Bill and Lorraine Courier. This was a couple that had gone missing a year earlier and the police had no leads. He told the FBI that he flew to Chicago before driving to Vermont he targeted the couriers simply for their lack of children or pets. Other than this, they were chosen completely at random. He bound the couple and transported them to a nearby abandoned farmhouse. Here, he shot Bill before sexually assaulting and strangling Lorraine. He then just put their bodies into plastic bags and hid them under debris in the basement. So this was obviously a huge piece of information for the FBI. But it turned out that the farmhouse had actually been demolished a short time after the murders and all of the debris was taken to a landfill site. Of course, after hearing this, Israel Keyes laughed and he stated that he didn't have any idea about it. The landfill site was then searched for 12 weeks, but their bodies were never found. It's got to make you think, though. What else could be in landfill sites that we just don't notice? So after telling the FBI this information... Israel Keyes knew that he had them in the palm of his hand. He began to trickle in more information. So he stated that he had committed four murders in Washington between 2001 and 2007, stating that after the birth of his daughter in 2001, he didn't want to harm any children. Which makes you wonder, did he harm them before 2001? He also alluded to his involvement in the disappearance of a woman called Deborah Feldman in 2009. The investigators showed him a photo and he seemed really uncomfortable. It's assumed that he took her from New Jersey before murdering her and burying her body over state lines in New York. Well, it turns out Israel Keyes was also an arsonist and would go on whole crime sprees around the time of the murders, which included armed robbery. He was mainly linked to a robbery of the Bank of Texas, shortly before being arrested in Texas for the murder of Samantha Keoning. So if you remember that dye-stained money they found in his car, banks usually use dye systems that spray banknotes with permanent dye to render stolen money absolutely useless. I just kind of wonder why he kept it in his car. So of course this guy was Salkov... So of course this guy underwent psychological invalidation psychological evaluation while in police custody. They concluded that he had, I quote, high average IQ with antisocial tendencies. 
However, they also said that he was technically sane and could therefore make his own legal decisions. He was also found to have an elevated need of control, which was kind of obvious. I'm no psychologist, but I kind of saw that coming. He was an opportunistic killer who chose his victims completely at random. This was due to a strong impulse to kill. But the kills were actually premeditated. Random, but premeditated? Well, you've probably noticed by now that this guy travelled around a lot. While doing this, he would bury kill kits around the country. And these were buckets just chock full of weapons, ammunition, rope, zip ties, and chemicals to aid in disposing bodies. One of these kill kits was used in the murder of Bill and Lorraine Courier, but it had actually been buried two years previously. In a book written in 2019 by Maureen Callahan, she also stated that he had a gastric band fade to delay his hunger, meaning that he could travel further and not be disrupted while carrying out his crimes. Israel Keyes stated to police that he'd been two different people for 14 years. He kept his public image clean while giving in to his darkest impulses in private. He stated that it all started when he was a teenager. He grabbed a young girl from the river who had strayed a little from her group of friends. He'd taken her to a deserted bathroom and sexually assaulted her, planning to use the knives that he'd brought with him to perform a satanic ritual. See? I told you the whole Satanism thing would be back. This girl managed to escape by talking to him and convincing him to let her go. She got away lucky, as from there, he vowed to himself that he would never be that weak again. I feel like I need to say this. I have an interest in all things weird and wonderful, and therefore, yes, I have done a bit of research into Satanism in my younger years. There are extremist branches in every religion and ideology, but human sacrifices are not accepted by the Church of Satan. They denounce any harm done unto others, and even one of their 11 satanic rules for the earth states, do not make sexual advances unless you are given the mating signal. It's just something to think about. During a check of his prison cell, under his bed, the police found 12 drawings. 11 of these were skulls drawn in his own blood. The twelfth was a goat-like head drawn in a downwards pentagram. Police interpreted the skulls to indicate that he had a total of 11 victims, but seven of these have not been identified. And I couldn't actually find anything online explaining the twelfth picture, so I decided to do some digging myself. It's obviously a satanic symbol, but this depiction is actually known as Baphomet, and represents all things in the universe. Good and bad. Light and dark, balance and necessity. Maybe this is how he viewed himself, or the things that he was doing. When asked if he had murdered outside of the US, Israel Keyes simply stated, Canadians don't count. In May of 2012, he had a federal court hearing to set a trial date, and he broke free of his ankle shackles. I have no idea how, though. He jumped the railing into the gallery, but was quickly tasered and restrained. Police saw this as a suicide attempt, and from here he was constantly guarded. However, in December of 2012, he was found face down in his jail cell. His left wrist was cut and a bedsheet wrapped around his neck and left ankle. He was immediately announced dead, but the coroner couldn't determine if the cause of death was loss of blood or strangulation. 
To this day, it's still not known how he even got the razor that he used. And he left behind a four-page suicide note in the form of a poem about his love of murder. But even this didn't provide any clues to the identity of more of his victims. I guess it just adds to the list of mysteries that he left behind. Just before his death, the police released information regarding these crimes to the public. Perhaps his death was a way of taking back control of the narrative. Taking back that control that he craved. I don't know. Guess I can't complain about cat meat under my bed, when it could be worse. There could be satanic symbols drawn in blood. Now that really would be a weird thing for a cat to leave under there. Luckily, cats can only rip things to shreds. It's a reason why humans are worse. Want to prove me wrong? Send an email to humansatworse at gmail.com. Come on, just tell me what your furry fiend is up to. Or give me a suggestion of a true crime story to cover. You can also follow us on Instagram at humansatworsepodcast.